We have a immense amount of experience and knowledge on this podcast. Joseph Wang, Fed guy, expertise in the plumbing of central banking, the flows. And we are joined by special guest Eric Basmajan, who knows a lot about the actual economy. Is the economy growing? Is it slowing? Can the economy handle the, the, uh, the monetary tightening that the Fed and the markets have sort of unleashed? Um, so guys, so glad to have you here. Joseph, I, I want to start actually by just exploring an idea that Eric and I were sort of just musing on, which is that up until this point, the destruction in wealth and sort of the pain has been felt on the capital side in terms of people who have assets, their uh, wealth has been reduced. But it ha- we, we're, not, we're not in a recession now. Uh, the unemployment rate is, is still extremely low. Do you think that that is the only leg of this macro journey that the sort of U.S. economy is on? Or do you think there's a next leg that gets a little bit uglier? I don't, I don't think we're done yet. So, I mean, if you if, – so I read the recent monetary policy report from the Fed. And what that really struck me was that they're wording that the Fed's inflation mandate is unconditional. So, you know, they're going to go and try to get inflation down even if it raises unemployment. And I suspect that they're probably going to have to have unemployment go higher before they can get their inflation down to to their target. So uh, eventually, this is probably going to bleed into the real economy as well. So, um, you know, there's going to be slower real growth. And Eric will talk about that, I imagine, as we go forward. But I think this is just the first thing. The financial markets are faster than real economy, right? So um, the full effect of what the Fed has done, I think, has yet to fully trickle down. Right. Eric, I want to bring you in what is going on in the real economy? Is the economy slowing down? Is the rate of, you know, how should we be thinking about that? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, first of all. And I'm really excited to be on with Joseph. We've never had a, a full-length conversation, so so this should be uh, pretty exciting. Um, as far as the economy, um, the growth rate in the economy has been cooling uh, since the spring of 2021. But what's been interesting about this cycle versus cycles in the past is that Growth was pushed to such an extremely elevated level that we've been in a slowing growth environment or, or the rate of growth has been coming down for quite some time. If we go back over the last 15 years, let's say from 2010 to 2020, we had several of these growth cycles where growth accelerated and decelerated, but we were sort of oscillating between this 1% and 3% range. So every time growth slowed, we would sort of crest at 3% and we'd come down to trend within a quarter or two. And then in another quarter or two, we'd be below trend and we'd be flirting with recession. This time, growth was pushed to 8, 9, 10% on a real basis. So we've been slowing for a year and a half and we've just sort of made it back to 1% or 2% now. And uh, the reason that that's been interesting is because a lot of the traditional uh, sectors and assets that would perform well in slowing growth environments haven't uh, performed well. And that's mainly because the Fed has had this prolonged window in which they're able to raise interest rates. You know, if this was a cycle of the past, growth would crest at 3%, it would start to come down. The Fed's always late, so they would start to raise rates or, or tighten policy then. And within a quarter or two, we'd be, you know, flirting with recession conditions and they would stop and they would never get too far. This time, even though growth's been slowing for over a year and a half, sort of like a plane being at 30,000 feet and it loses an engine. It can glide for a while, even though it's moving lower, before it sort of nosedives. 
So we've been gliding down from this really elevated path. The Fed has been taking that opportunity to raise rates and, and front load those rate hikes. Uh, and that's uh, sort of lulled people to the idea that this cyclical slowdown is um, is something that is going to trough out and, and reaccelerate where we're actually going to have uh, the phase where we now move below trend and flirt with recessionary conditions. So it's just been a little bit different uh, than, than what we've had over the last few years by nature of how high growth was pushed. Okay. And so how are we back within the normal range? Like where, yeah, where, yeah, where is GDP and real GDP now mm-hmm. real adjusted for inflation? Right. Also, you can maybe bring in some of the, the more recent data I saw. PMIs were, were quite weak. And then at what point will we be flirting with recession? And at what point will we also go into recession? And then also, uh, you know, do you do people say uh, that a, a real GDP contraction is is recessionary? I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, agrees right. with that. Uh, so, like, what is a recession also? You know, what are we, yeah. what are we counting? So whenever we define the economy, um, People like to look at real GDP, and that's a generally a good rule of thumb. But if you go to the NBER website and how they date and define business cycles, they're really looking at all corners of the economy. So you have to look at income, production, consumption, and employment. And if you look at real GDP, you know it doesn't take into consideration the income side of the equation. Uh, in, uh, real GDP also has volatile components like inventory and exports. So if we want to, you know, just get the core trend in the economy, we can look at four. Four corners, income, consumption, production, and employment. And everyone sort of knows the, the, the general indicators that, that measure those, you know, real personal consumption or retail sales, industrial production, non-farm payroll, employment, and, and personal income. And what we've seen in the economy is quite interesting. If you look at real income, it's negative and looks like it's recessionary. If you look at real consumption, that has fallen off a cliff and is bordering on uh, contractionary territory as well. Real retail sales over the last six months has grown at zero percent. So real income and real consumption would certainly check the box for a recession. However, employment is still growing at a four percent, four and a half percent annualized rate. Uh, so when you take the sort of average of all of those components of the economy, it's sort of balancing out at this trend level of 2% right now, although it's very bifurcated. And when we uh, look at economic cycles, those four corners work in a cyclical fashion. They feed on each other. So if you have lower income and you have lower consumption, then you're going to eventually, uh, companies are going to have too much inventory. They're going to cut production. And then if you have less production, you have less employment. So while right now we've sort of reached this steady state at 2% real growth, my view is over the next several months, because of the way the leading indicators are moving and the way that that sequence plays out, is that this real growth, which started really as a decline in real income and has flown through to real consumption, we're now going to see the inventory bloats, the cuts to production. And I do believe that this is going to have a second leg of this slowdown is going to be the one that's going to be recessionary where it moves to Main Street and employment starts to fall. But that's always the last of those of those sequence to move. Joseph, uh, how do you think the Federal Reserve is thinking about the risk of recession during, quote, normal times, i.e. the last you know 15 years? Reset, they've any they're, they're going to cut any time that they start to 
even think about being worried about a recession. Now is the cal- now that inflation is, is sky high, can you speak to what degree that we're in a different world and the Federal Reserve can say, yeah, a recession, you know, it's part of life. Uh, and then also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you have a question for Eric, please feel free. Yeah, so that, that's a good point, Jack. As you noted, the Fed has this dual mandate for employment, price stability, and usually there's some conflict between the two. So right now, though, the Fed has been very explicit in how it views the world. There is no trade-off. We need to get inflation down. Fed Powell does this in a couple of ways. He says that we need to have stable inflation to have full employment. So he makes his employment mandate conditional on price stability. So that means there's no trade-off. And of course, he just explicitly mentioned it in his monetary policy report as well. So I suspect that even if unemployment rises, we, he's still going to keep hiking until inflation gets lower. So I, I think that if you if you listen to what he's been talking about the past few months, he's like, yeah, we're, we're going to have a soft landing. Employment is really strong. Economy is strong. We can just slow it down a little bit. It won't be too bad. I think that that's probably optimistic. And you can kind of see that in the change in how he frames it going uh, most recently, for example. He's like, you know, there's some chance. It's really strange because I think as a country, we're, we're unable to accept that public policy has trade-offs. On one hand, we'll have low inflation and people who are dependent on fixed income or social security, they're going to benefit. And some people, um, yeah, they're going to lose their jobs. But then again, the labor market, it's dynamic. People go in and go out all the time. So policy is trade-offs. It seems like the politics is that we really, really focus only on the cost and not on the benefits. It's going to be a difficult political sell, but I think the Fed has been clear what they're going to do. What I'm curious about, though, is, Eric, what do you think about Powell's chances of having a soft landing? Or are you more in line of, let's say, Larry Summers and Bill Dudley, we're going to have a hard landing? Yeah, I would say that the chances of of a soft landing are are rapidly approaching zero for for a number of reasons. One is that if we just take a historical view and we say how many tightening cycles have ended in a soft landing, it's not very many, right? So so right off off the bat, the odds are not on their side. I think it's maybe something like 10% of tightening cycles have have ended in a soft landing. So if if we were gonna make a blind bet, I think you'd have to bet on a hard landing uh, regardless. The other way I make that determination is um, the the fundamentals of the economy or the secular trends in the economy are are so weak that uh, increases in interest rates just tend to uh, slow the economy in such a dramatic way uh, that it it again pushes the the odds towards a hard landing. I was doing an analysis. Uh, I'm going to try and quote some of the numbers off my head, but in in uh, the 1999 recession, we had about a 200 basis point increase in interest rates across the economy. So if we take a blend of mortgage rates, short-term interest rates, uh, and corporate bond rates, we look at you know, something like an 18-month or a two-year rate of change. Uh, interest rates rose about 200 basis points. And at that time, aggregate debt to GDP was you know around 250%. In 2006, it was about 150 to 170 basis points. And debt to GDP was around 330 uh, percent. In 2018, we we had our debt pushed to about 350 percent, and it only took 120 basis points in 2018 to sort of flip the recessionary switch. We're now at 370 percent debt to GDP, and we've had a 300 basis point increase, way more than any other time in history, um, except for 1980, 1982. 
And what happened in that, uh, that situation was we had two back-to-back recessions. So just on the basis of interest rates rising so rapidly, uh, that's a recessionary cocktail. So this is the chart here. Uh, and in that 1980, 1982 example, we had a 300 basis point increase about what we had today, but debt to GDP was only uh, t- uh, 170%. So 200% lower than it is today. So given how much debt we've had in the system and how large this interest rate spike has been, that again, pushes the scales massively towards a hard landing. Uh, it's it's not a sure thing. I don't present this chart to say that this is a guaranteed recession. But if you're going to sort of uh, you know be on the Titanic looking for icebergs, this is something that suggests that you know six to twelve months in the future we're likely to have a large problem because you can't have a system with 370 percent debt to GDP and then push a 300 uh, basis point rate spike uh, on the holders of those assets. So this is a, an aggregate of corporate rates, which is mostly the market, almost 100% the market, mortgage rate, which is also the market, but the Federal Reserve gets a little involved because you know the Fed now has mortgage-backed securities, and then short-term treasury rates, which is heavily controlled by the Federal Reserve. So it's it's Mr. Market, uh, it's the market, but it's also the Fed. So it's sort of, un, it's unclear which is which. Like in, in this case, it definitely has been the Federal Reserve uh, leading the charge in terms of the tightening. It's, it's not as if, you know, uh, credit spreads have been blowing out, quite to the contrary. Um, so well, sorry, I, I, would make, I would make one point there, and Joseph can jump in too, is that we haven't seen triple B corporate rates or investment grade corporate rates widen out that much. You're right, most of that move, if not all of that move, has been the treasury or the duration component. But we have seen mortgage rates uh, or spreads between mortgages and treasuries widen pretty significantly as well. Uh, that may have something to do with the Fed's quantitative tightening program or, or, or just general uh, you know, risk that's been pushed on the private sector. What's interesting about the interest rate analysis is that uh, when we talk about conditions that would cause treasury rates to increase, things like inflation, maybe quantitative tightening, uh, we have to remember that those interest rate increases that are pushed on the benchmark rate are, by definition, pushed across the entire economy, whether the spread widens or not. And at some point, the treasury rate widens so much that the duration risk becomes the credit risk. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a corporate a, a corporate borrower was borrowing at 2% or 2.5% uh, a year and a half, two years ago, just because of the treasury component, those same corporates are now borrowing at 55 to 6%, even though the spread hasn't widened at all. But I would argue that these companies are a much larger credit risk at a 6% rate than they are a 2% rate. So now the market's having to price in the fact that, oh, 6%, is going to be a problem, whether it's coming from the treasury or the spread, that's slowing economic growth. And now the market is starting to widen some of these credit spreads on top of this increase in interest rates that we've seen. So so Eric, your thinking would be that because companies have a lot of debt, when the Fed raises rates, their interest rate burden goes higher, and so they'll have more trouble meeting them. And so that would feed into the credit risk component. And so over time, widen out their spreads. Yeah, the, the interest uh, the interest expense component would rise for the private sector, and that would that would theoretically reduce corporate margins or reduce earnings, therefore making it more difficult to to grow earnings in the future. Maybe companies would have a lower multiple because of that, or or, or increased credit risk because of that. And uh, when you look at it in the context of the mortgage market, it would just generally slow demand for for new construction, which puts pressure on some of the more speculative builders, like the home builders that we've seen. Um, so the, the, the reason that I look at the interest rates across the whole economy is because whether it's coming from the benchmark rate, coming from the spread, the, just the nominal level of interest rate rising has an impact across many different participants. 
Eric, I've also noted once in, in your tweets, you mentioned that uh, something really important that the, well, the, the housing cycle is the economic, economic cycle, right? Because the housing sector is such a large part, employs a lot of people, buys a lot of materials, and we can kind of see it slowing in real time. Mortgage rates have jumped so much. And if you have such a big part of the economy, which is interest rate sensitive slowing, that, that's going to feed through um, every, a lot of other uh, dependent uh, subsectors as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and and the feed-through mechanism for that would be, like you mentioned, the, the purchases of raw materials and commodities, but then also you think about everything that goes into a house, uh, and it's mostly durable goods and household appliances. These And that was the sort of... Uh, the, the, the super spike that we saw during the pandemic was all of these durable goods. A lot of it was because of stimulus. A lot of it was because of a boom in, in residential construction and people moving. Uh, a lot of that is starting to unwind now. And there's going to be a uh, sort of a, a, a double whammy uh, of where the economy was elevated through, through residential fixed investment and durable goods consumption through stimulus and through, I would argue, a one-time behavioral shift of people moving from cities to suburbs and ordering uh, goods to consume at home, maybe like a home office. Uh, we're we're going to see a natural hangover from that because durable goods have a shelf life, right? If you if you bought a home office equipment, like a new desk, or you furnished your uh, uh, new house with couches or, or appliances, you don't need to buy those items every couple of years. So every time uh, you, you have a large increase in, in durable goods consumption, you do have sort of a pent-up demand hangover. Uh, but so we're going to have that natural pent up demand hangover. But now on top of that, the Fed is increasing interest rates and they're going to cause an ancillary slowdown on top of that. So uh, the slowdown could take on sort of this, this bull whip uh, effect where it has a, a more forceful downturn or a more forceful uh, move lower because it's going to be coming from the cyclical engine. It's going to be coming from the housing and durable goods sector. Uh, so, Eric. When do you think a recession is coming? What's the time frame? And then also, what will be the indicator? Is it going to be employment? Is it going to be industrial uh, production, retail spending, growth in general? Right. So the the economy, in in the way that I look at it, is certainly on a pre-recessionary path now. Um, Based on the way that the data is, is currently reported, we're not in a recession. However, the reason it's difficult to make these declarations in real time is because specifically around inflection points, the data is so heavily revised. So it's, it's entirely possible that, that six months from now, we could look back at this period that we're in, and that 2% number that I quoted for growth could be revised down to something like 1%. Um, and when the, uh, these agencies do their annual benchmark and five-year revision, sometimes we see really large changes. Like there was a famous employment revision around the 2017-18 period that took away like a million jobs over uh, about a one-year period. So uh, we could have a massive revision and we could end up being in a recession now. I'm, I'm not ruling that out. But as the data stands today, we are not in a recession, mainly because employment is, is too strong. Um, when you look at the NBER's definition of a recession, it's it's a widespread contraction in those four variables. Uh, and if you look further down their definition, they focus on two of those four components, which are real income and employment. It's interesting because if you look at real income, it's recessionary. But if you look at employment, it's not. Um, so the, the, the economy is basically teetering on the edge of recession with employment being the last leg that's still holding the economy up. Uh, if we move uh, down the road towards the end of the year and we have job losses, 
that would basically be a, a, a nail in the coffin that the economy uh, is currently in a recession at that moment and was likely entering a recession maybe around this period. Um, so to, 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 if you're going to make the case that a recession is in a, a 2022 story, which I believe that the probability is rising that this is a 2022 story, not a 2023 story, is you need to have job losses in 2022. If job losses are pushed into 2023 or don't uh, occur at all, then this will have been a soft landing or, or, or no recession. So, so my view, based on the way the sequence of the economic cycle plays out, is that you have a significant slowdown or contraction in the housing market, which I believe is underway now. That slowdown in the housing market flows through to new orders of, of durable goods, uh, bloated inventories, reduced production of, of uh manufacturers, that's likely to be a Q3 story, September, October. And, and by the end of the year, I think it's highly likely that we do see negative employment prints, although that would be kind of a sharp decline in employment. I think that the rest of the cycle is moving quite sharply. So employment should move with, with commensurate speed. So uh, the sequence would be a slowdown in housing, then a, sl a major slowdown in new orders and manufacturing activity appearing maybe September, October, and then it would hit employment and, and some of those other indicators last. So I think that the probability is rising that this is a 2022 story, which was out of consensus maybe, maybe six weeks ago when the market was pricing at a terminal rate of 4% and a peak Fed funds rate around March or June. The market has really shifted those expectations over the last two weeks, where now they're actually pricing December as the peak Fed funds rate down at you know 350. So we've moved the peak Fed funds rate down 50 or 60 basis points, and we've moved it forward. You know, Maybe six months ago, we were in September, then we moved to June, then we moved to March, now we're in December. So the market's starting to price in, the Fed not really going to be able to move past December. And I don't think the Fed will stop, as Joseph mentioned, until a recession is a uh, an unavoidable reality, and that would to me, mean that the Fed is going to keep going until they see uh, outright negative numbers on these NFP reports, and maybe a couple of them in a row. But, but what about? Uh, isn't it all about inflation? And you know, could you have a negative NFP report, but inflation, the, the PCE, is six percent? It, it, it that's possible, but we've never had a recession in history where inflation goes up. Inflation goes down in every single recession. The question is, does the Fed re-stimulate and, and does inflation re-accelerate after the recession is over? That's an open question, and that may def, uh, depend on the fiscal reaction and the monetary reaction. But if the economy is currently in a recession with uh, job losses, the inflation rate won't be accelerating at that point. It'll be decelerating. And we are sort of conditioned because of this inflationary environment over the past six to 12 months that inflation is going to come down slowly. That may be the case, but I would remind everyone of a 2008 example where in July of 2008, inflation was about five and a half, six percent. And within six months, it was negative two percent. And that had to do with a massive repricing in oil. But if you know we go into a recession, the market gets worried about it and oil goes from 120 to 60 that's going to be pulled. That's going to probably pull the CPI pretty close to to, to zero uh, within, within a short period of time. That's not I'm not saying that's going to happen specifically, but when a recession develops, uh, credit spreads blow out, the market starts to get hectic. 
usually what you see is a massive decline in inflation expectations because the oil price is coming down so hard. So uh, I, I do think it will be somewhat dependent on oil and where the Fed could really get into a box, um, uh, a box that they may not be able to get out of is if we have uh, oil prices jump back up to maybe 130, 140, 150. Uh, that would be a, a very difficult environment for them. But, but if we have a recession, uh, and, and one that's that's deep, I would expect that to overpower any of these supply issues that are impacting oil. Right. It's a great point about how quickly inflation fell from July of 2008. But it's also remarkable how in the peak of inflation was months after the collapse of Bear Stearns and how in, the peak of inflation is deep, deep late cycle. It's not inflation does not go down uh uh, at the in the middle of the cycle, no, it's it's extremely late cycle. So I'm curious, you know, if if uh, Joseph is correct, and I mean Fed Chair Powell, you know, it's it's what he said, just that inflation is what we care about. Inflation is what we care about, mm -hmm. and you have senators saying uh, inflation is you know eating, inflation is um, is making my people coughing up bones, cough up bones. If, if <laughs> like you have if if inflation is number one. Uh, does Jay Powell, does the FOMC care about uh, negative non-farm payroll reports, Joseph? Uh, I I don't think he does. I, I think actually that's kind of the purpose of what he's doing. He, he wants to have some negative farm, farm payroll reports. He needs to have unemployment go higher. I think that's a traditional economic thinking. I agree with Eric. He'd, he's going to be in a really tough situation if we have this negative commodity shock that actually gets worse. And it could get worse. Uh, from what I'm reading in the news, it seems like there's more of an inclination for Russia to use its energy as a, as a weapon. So it seems like what they're trying to do is kind of cut, up, cut off gas to Europe. But the way the energy complex works, it's that it's all connected. So if you have higher gas prices, someone somewhere will start burning coal, start burning oil instead. And so that could all spiral out of control. So there does seem to be a possibility of what's conventionally called stagflation. And you can actually see that in, in Fed forecasts as well, lower real growth, higher inflation. Uh, Eric, do you have any view on, on, I mean, we're kind of in a stagflationary world right now, right? We have declining growth and persistently high inflation. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a, I mean, is it really just all about the oil or is there other things like maybe, uh, let's say, higher maybe credit creation or let's say, Increasing supply of labor, things like that. Yeah, I, I recently wrote a thread of, uh, maybe a couple of days ago on this. And, and, and my view is that the inflation picture is becoming increasingly narrow. And it basically is coming down to just oil. Because if we look at some of the factors uh, that were contributing to a high inflationary environment, maybe we go back uh, 18 months ago, we had extraordinarily stimulative monetary policy. Uh, that was pushing a lot of liquidity into the system with uh, uh, fiscal policy as well. So that was certainly a pro-inflationary force stimulating demand. We had commodity prices broadly. So we had um, you know, oil was sort of late to the game, but we had the industrial commodities in, in February of 2021. They were rising at a 100 percent annualized rate, things like copper. You know, copper prices basically doubled in a year. Uh, and we also, if we recall, you know, 18 months ago or 12 months ago, the inflation story wasn't about oil at all. It was about the supply chain and the impact on durable goods, right? So we had durable goods inflation of about 20, uh, 21%. Uh, and on top of that, if we go back uh, a year to early 2021, we had a declining US dollar. So we had the dollar that was declining. We had stimulative monetary policy, durable goods inflation, commodity price inflation across the whole spectrum. If we look at what's going on today, we have extraordinarily contractionary monetary policy. 
Uh, we have a U.S. dollar that's hitting multi, uh, multi-decade multi highs, depending on what index that you look at. And the commodity complex is getting increasingly narrow. If we look at broad industrials, we have negative price growth over the last six months. So industrial commodities are going down. Even more narrow would be things like metals, specifically like copper. Copper was increasing at a 100% annualized rate uh, uh, 18 months ago. It's now declining at a 12% annualized rate. So a huge shift in, in, in commodities uh, broadly. And if we look at durable goods, durable goods inflation was at about 20%. It's fallen to about 6%. And I think that most people would agree with some of these reports that we're seeing with these excess inventory at major retailers that the durable goods inflation story is mostly in the rearview mirror. So if we look at all the drivers of inflation, I'm sorry, and you mentioned wages. Wages certainly were contributing to inflation, but uh, I'm not a believer in a wage price spiral. I don't believe that's ever been proven out in the data. Uh, I believe that it's a money price wage spiral, so wages lag. And with the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and slowing the economy, employment growth will cool and wage growth will always follow uh, overall employment growth. So when we look at all the drivers of inflation, most of them have flipped from pro-inflation to pro-deflation or, or disinflation. The one that's really holding up the entire complex is, is oil prices. And then to a, a secondary, a slightly lesser effect would be food prices. Both of those have been very, very um, uh, tied to, to the war uh, in, with Russia and Ukraine. My view about the inflation uh, picture is that uh, inflation was starting to subside and starting to cool before the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. That invasion of Russia and Ukraine caused a secondary spike in com- uh, commodities, mainly uh, food and fuel. And I believe that that gave an extra three, four, five months to what was a uh, already diminishing inflation story. I don't believe that it was a, a secular shift. And if we go back to um, late February, which isn't that long ago, Inflation expectations five year, five year forwards were 1.9% below the long term average with a, with a terminal Fed funds rate that was 1.5%. So the market was saying that with just 1.5%, the Fed was going to be successful taming inflation expectations. Then you had the invasion of Russia and Ukraine, and all of a sudden inflation expectations jumped, and now we're at a 3.5% terminal rate to, to sort of tame inflation. So I think that, that this sort of second leg of this inflation story was really, really, really tied to that Russia uh, shock. Uh, and, and the cyclical dynamics of inflation were already starting to come down, and I think they will continue to do so. Yeah, so I, I want to ask both of you about the collapse in, com- collapse is a dramatic word, but the drastic fall over the past two weeks, two to three weeks in commodities, copper, oil, natural gas. I think natural gas is actually pretty close to uh, you know March levels, February to March levels. Um, and Eric, I'll say that based just like real pros such as yourself, Joseph, people at the Fed, people at the major banks, they focus on month over month data. Uh, but the sort of Joe public uh, that I represent, uh, we like to focus on the year over year statistics, which is very noisy. And it's 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 base effects It's comparing from uh, 12 months prior. So if the price of oil stays at, I don't know, $110 that the WTI is, uh, it doesn't have to go up. Still, the November CPI print will compare it to September 2021 when it was way, way, way lower. So I think uh, you know, on a year-over-year basis, base effects are still in the favor of the, the commodity, pro- unless, of course, they fall. So, my question to you, Joseph, is: you know, 
uh, I know you've been uh, involved in the energy space. What have you, you know, uh, up until this year, everything's been going down. R2, Tesla's going down, Apple's going down. Oh, I got, I'm hedged. I own bonds. Nope. No, you're not. You're not hedged. Oh, I'm hedged. I have the VIX. I, I own volatility. Uh, VIX futures. Nope. I mean, that's yeah. not really worked either. But the the one bastion, the last thing you can rely upon has been energy, XLE, all these energy producers that need oil when the, the economy is, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't have a lot of it. Not so. Over the past two weeks, we've seen a pretty epic collapse in, in XLE. Again, I'm using that. It's it's the, the year-to-date returns are still phenomenal. But what have you what have you made of that, Joseph? So by involved, I mean I listen to a lot of podcasts, so <laughs> <laughs> especially ones on forward guidance. <laughs> so you know, from from so from what I hear from the people who study this a lot is that structurally there's just not a lot of investment in things like commodities and energy. And part of that is because the official sector is telling everyone that, you know, in the future, we're all going to go green. And the, the official sector has a lot of power in influencing that. So, you know, there's less investment in fossil fuels and there's more investment in green energy, which is very commodity intensive. You want to build an electric car, you want to build um, wind turbine, you need a lot of steel, you need a lot of copper. Uh, lithium, things like that. So from what I understand, just listening to what people say, because there's not this lot, this lack of investment, it it appears that, and the the fact is that oil demand globally is growing, uh, not just in the developed world, but especially in the developing world. You have billions of people in in China and India who, who don't have a lot of money and Eventually, as they grow, they're going, to have, they're, want, they're going to want to have cars like we do here in the West. They're going to want to have a refrigerator. And that all takes more energy and takes more commodities. And it seems like the trend, then, in my view, is that there's going to be greater demand for fossil fuels and materials. And because the official sector has been discouraging supply, we, we seem to have this imbalance that we're moving into, such that there could be a shift in that prices for commodities and that fossil fuels go higher. And if that's the case, then you, what, you're, what, you're, what you're looking at maybe is more of a supply side driven shift in how the economy works. Everything is going to be, uh, the costs of everything are going higher. So that, that's going to be something that, that we could see play out in the coming years. Now, I don't study this as much as the experts do, but what they say makes sense and it seems to be uh, borne out in the data. And if that's true, I think that that could be a lot of trouble for the Fed because, you know, the Fed manages demand and not so much supply. Something else that I've been looking into, um, and, you know, Eric does a lot of work in demographics as well, is that it seems like when we have an aging demographics, one of the things that happens is that we have a lower supply of labor. There's some interesting work being done here uh, by, by a number of economists that show that when we age, even though we consume less, let's say we don't buy as many cars, we don't buy as many houses, but our overall consumption actually increases because what we start consuming more of is medical services. And so as we age, people consume you know, as much or more stuff, but they don't produce anymore. So we have this mismatch in demand and supply as well. So globally, maybe we have not enough commodities, not enough fossil fuels, and a decreasing labor pool. So that could in my view, push up cost, cost-based inflation as we go forward. And that could be a structural shift because, um, you know, this thing that's happening right now, it's, it's a reversal of what we've been seeing the past few decades. The past few decades, we'd have enormous amounts of commodities, enormous amounts of fossil fuels like the shale revolution, and we'd have a constantly growing labor force globally, not just in the U.S., but uh, in China and other countries as well. That's all. That's all reversing, and we we could be at the cusp of something 
but we'll find out as in the coming years. Yeah, Fed Chair Jay Powell made that all too clear yesterday when he testified at the Senate that the Fed has no control over the price of oil. Yeah, uh, just piggybacking on what he said, I, I sort of separate my commodity view into uh, the really cyclical growth sensitive commodities like the industrials and then and then oil separately. When we study uh, growth cycles uh, or these accelerations or decelerations in growth, the, the industrial commodities like copper and the rest of them are so incredibly uh, correlated to the cycle that it tends to just really overpower uh, the supply narratives and things like that. And I think that's playing out in copper and the broad industrial space now. We've seen a really precipitous decline in these commodities as the market has moved uh, into the slowdown view and is toggling with the recession view. Oil, when we study these cycles, is a little bit different because it's really it's driven a lot by services as well. The industrials are just are very heavily focused on, on on the industrial production cycle, but oil feeds into airlines and cars and, and the service sector more broadly. So oil tends to be a more late cycle than some of the industrial commodities. So I'm, I'm more sympathetic to the supply view when it comes to oil. I'm less sympathetic to the supply view when it comes to the industrial commodities. I believe that the industrials are going to follow the cycle, uh, and and they have. I think they will continue to do so. Uh, and when we look at the industrial commodities, what drives that? It, it's really the the global industrial production cycle, which is driven by U.S. demand for durable goods and and Chinese uh, property investment. Uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, significant evidence that China's reflating their property sector, which would put downward pressure on industrial commodities. And the global economy and U.S. economy is slowing from a durable goods perspective. So I think it makes sense that the industrial commodities are coming down quite hard. I would expect that to continue as the economy continues to grind lower and likely moves into a recession. Oil uh, is, is much more prone to uh, errant political shocks and geopolitical shocks, which can happen during a recession or not. Um, so I, I have a little bit of sympathy for the uh, supply view with oil, less sympathetic on the industrials. I think those go lower. Uh, as far as the demographics are concerned, um, I have done a lot of work on the demographics. I, I have a little bit of pushback on, on one of Joseph's comments about uh, the increase of, of consumption. Uh, the BLS puts out uh, reports, a lot of different agencies put out reports on total consumption by age cohort. And if we look at total consumption, which includes medical services, we see a, a decline. Uh, but we definitely see a decline in aggregate consumption as the population ages. And the reason that I believe that aging demographics are slowing population growth ultimately ends up as a deflationary force is through the investment accounts in the GDP. Uh, so this is this chart on the screen here is the average uh, consumption by age cohort, uh, and this is from 2020. But if you look at like 2013, 2015, it's all it's all the same trend. Um, so the reason that demographics is deflationary, in my view, happens in the investment account. I, I believe that Joseph is correct that there are localized inflationary concerns that can happen with aging demographics, specifically like a tightening of the labor market. But if we look at all of the countries that are advanced on their demographics curve, like Japan or Italy, the periphery of Europe, what ends up happening is the investment account really starts to suffer. And that's generally residential fixed investment. Uh, if we think about China or we think about Japan, if we think if we if you have less people, less bodies, but you're adding more units, 
It's a supply demand. The, the price of those units is going to come down. There's going to be a deflationary pressure in the uh, real estate sector of the economy. It's really impossible to have an inflationary real estate environment with less people. So then your choice, and then everyone's basically posed with the Chinese model. Do you continue the growth engine by investing in residential and, uh, and private fixed investment broadly, increasing the supply while your population is decreasing, basically pushing the deflation down the road? Or do you stop the construction of real estate and, and, and fixed investment generally, which slows aggregate growth in the economy, slows real growth, there's less units moving throughout the economy. So the aging demographic problem really comes through the investment account. You can't build more units, more structures, more hospitals, more parks with less people. You can, but then you have excess capacity. And if you slow the investment in those categories, then aggregate growth slows because that is the engine of growth uh, period, the investment in cyclical. So I'm focused on the investment account and how aging demographics impacts growth and inflation. I think that's a really good point. If you look at, let's say, residential property in Japan, it really hasn't gone up the way that everyone else hasn't it's actually gone down i think yeah, yeah. especially in real terms and if you look at italy if you look at parts of europe and spain uh those price those real estate prices haven't made new highs since 2011 2012. Uh, so it's really difficult to have sustained increases in the property sector with with less people there's just no one to live there everyone is old. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah, exactly but but you know when you think about china they've taken the other direction and they said we're gonna we're gonna build anyway because any economy, I don't care if it's Japan, uh, China, Europe, or the United States, this, the, the cyclical growth engine is, is residential fixed investment, it's apartment construction, it's housing construction, and then to a lesser extent, investment in structures and equipment, and then the consumption of durable goods. Those categories are the cyclical engines of the economy. And China has decided to ramp those categories, even though they're uh, going to have less people. And now they're sort of faced with with a problem. Uh, Japan decided to deflate their bubble. Um, China's hasn't decided what they're going to do. Europe has been mired in this quagmire for, for a long time and, and they've suffered the consequences as well. So the United States is, is, is much uh, behind those countries. So the United States isn't going to have depopulation or negative population growth. It's not likely for the next 10 years. There's no uh, projections that I've seen that are suggesting a significant contraction in population over the next 10 years. It's mostly going to be flat, something like 0.1 to 0.3. So there is still going to be positive population growth. So it's not like I'm forecasting a Japan scenario for the U.S. property sector. My, my, my general point is that the, the demographic angle, in my view, tends to be overwhelmed on the deflationary side through the investment account, uh, mainly investment structures, residential property, and things like that. But I, I do definitely concede certain inflationary elements like labor and other things like that. Hmm. Interesting. Eric, I've got a, I want to put up a chart that you posted recently. You said monetary policy is clearly not aiding inflation anymore. And you point to a contraction in the monetary base. How in 2021, monetary base, and we can get into what is monetary base, was growing at a 30% annualized rate. Today, it's contracting at a 10% rate. And reserves in the banking system are falling at a 28% annualized rate. I'm so glad you posted this because this really uh, you know, uh, uh, aligns well with, with Joseph's expertise. Joseph, I'll uh, zoom in a little bit later. But you know, for so long, yeah, I, I want to hear what do you think is the role of 
bank reserves in inflation. Because for so long we've heard you can you know QE out QE bonanza cannot force banks to lend. You can't lend up banks. Banks can't lend out reserves. So what do you think the role is of of this bank reserves in inflation? Mm-hmm. So I think broadly it, I view it as increasing liquidity in uh, in the system. And I, there was a recent paper that came out that that basically showed that these injections of liquidity from central banks um, are fungible, so they can flow uh, to different countries. Just because the U.S. increases uh, liquidity in our system, the uh, liquidity is fungible; it can flow uh, other countries, and it's amplified when other countries are doing the same programs because that liquidity can flow to the United States. It basically just flows to wherever people believe have the highest rates of return. And and my thinking with posting this chart as far as inflation was really about asset prices. Uh, you know, we, we were talking about the, the, the wealth effect as a contributor to inflation. And when the Federal Reserve was increasing reserves in the banking system, pushing liquidity into the banking system, uh, generally we see a, a increase in, in risk assets because of this liquidity effect. And, and that was driving an increase in durable goods consumption and the housing sector like we were just talking about. And now as the Federal Reserve is, is basically contracting the monetary base, shrinking reserves in the banking system, they're basically contracting world dollar liquidity, which is putting pressure on those risk assets in more speculative areas of the market. Uh, and they're trying to have the, the reverse wealth effect, essentially, which would pull down consumption and help them on their inflation mandate. Um, my view of how this last two years has played out, I know Joseph may have some slightly different views on, on, on velocity, but basically we had a huge increase in, in money supply or monetary aggregates uh, way above trend. Uh, monetary growth is still something like 20% above the historical trend. But nominal GDP growth is basically on trend. So if GDP is on trend, but money supply is way above trend, that means velocity is way below trend. And what that means from a practical standpoint is that a lot of this liquidity was channeled into financial markets rather than the real economy. And then as the Federal Reserve comes and pulls this liquidity out, my view is that this is going to impact financial assets first and more aggressively as compared to the real economy. Uh, so that was my my thinking when I posted this chart as far as the inflation dynamic. It was more about uh, how the liquidity has impacted financial assets. And now that that liquidity is coming out, how that's going to impact financial assets and, and have the opposite effect on inflation. But I think that Joseph will have a, a better volley on that than I will. I think I agree with Eric, and I think Richard Werner has made this point before. So when you have a lot of money, if it goes into buying goods and services, then you can see uh, the velocity of money pick up. But the money can also go into asset inflation. And if you're just buying assets, you're not contributing to, to the real economy. So it doesn't really show up in velocity. And what's been happening over the past few years is, as Eric noted, a lot of the money just goes into chasing assets. So when, you, when I look at the space and reserve balances thing, so when there's a lot of liquidity in the system, people don't want to hold, let's say, zero yielding assets. And so they shift their portfolios into more risk. And that, in my view, is part of what contributed to narrow, narrowing corporate spreads, as we were discussing earlier. And so as right now, QT has barely started, right? So there's still a lot of liquidity in the system. There's still some people who really need yield and they're buying corporate bonds instead of treasuries for, for a little bit of uh, extra pickup. That's why the spread is still narrowing. As QT proceeds as we continue to draw liquidity out of the system, then I think that, you know, on the margins, there's going to be less money yielding zero that needs to be invested somewhere. And so we could see corporate spreads widen out. I think of that as the mechanical aspect of um, just this uh, 
liquidity in the system. Uh, but the Fed actually looks at it a bit differently. It doesn't really focus so much on the quantity of liquidity as it does as rates. And the purpose that the Fed does QE is to adjust rates, not so much to pump uh, liquidity into the system. They, they have to pump. So to when they push rates down, they do that by buying agency MBS and treasuries, and they fund it by creating money. And creating liquidity is almost a side effect of what they're trying to do. Um, so that, I think, goes into Eric's uh, you know, housing cycle. So when the Fed goes and they're buying stuff, uh, let's say pushing down mortgage rates, that gooses the housing cycle. And as they're retreating, as we mentioned earlier, agency MBS spreads are blowing out, mortgage rates are going higher, and that cycle slows. Right. I, I just want to be clear that I think what we're looking at yeah, it refers to bank reserves, which is, you know, they're created via quantitative easing, they're taken away from quanti via quantitative tightening, not credit creation, not banks making a mortgage, banks making a commercial or industrial loan, or banks lending credit card consumer loans. This is, has nothing to, to do with it. So, you know, the Federal Reserve can pump QE into the system, pump tons of uh, this money into the system. I know sometimes when you call it money, some people don't like that. But, uh, you know, it's different. We got different forms of money, and that's and that's fine. Um you know, but that that's not super inflationary. It is via the wealth effect, but that's you know, it's it's like peanuts, uh, right? But the the reverse is true. When banks remove reserves from the system, when the when the Fed re removes reserves from the uh, banking system via quantitative tightening by letting assets expire or outright selling, that doesn't for they can't force banks to stop lending to to stop inflation. So we can I can actually put up a chart in a moment of bank lending, uh, commercial bank lending, which is off the charts. Uh, so. You know, bank lending. If if the true vehicle of inflation, when it comes to the money, you know, the the, the financial plumbing system is commercial bank credit creation, that is still looking very, very, very juicy. Like what, Eric and Joseph too? What is going to stop banks to stop lending? Um, my view on bank lending is that uh, bank lending is a lagging economic indicator. Um, if you take the year over year rate of change of like total bank lend bank lending in the, um, in the, you know, that comes from the, the, uh, I think it's the H8 report is the one that most people look at. Um, bank lending tends to, uh, bank lending growth tends to peak during, uh, or at the end of the recession. And it tends to uh, trough sometimes two, three, even four years into, uh, the, the next expansion. So bank lending is typically a lagging economic indicator. That's where it falls in the sequence of, of, uh, of data. And the bank lending that we've seen, I think it's also important to look at the uh, lending in real terms or adjusted for inflation. Because if you have 9% inflation and you have 9% bank lending, uh, it's 0% it's in real terms. So if you look at bank lending in real terms, in the 1970s, uh, it was in the 3 4 5% range. Uh, and over the last um, uh, 10 years prior to uh, COVID, it was in the 2% range. And if you look at it in real terms, we're actually way below uh, trend of where we were the last cycle. So I don't use bank lending uh, as a huge part of my analysis because it doesn't, in my view, fall in the leading uh, economic indicators. So it doesn't provide me much view on what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and I think that uh, if we look at uh, bank lending on a year over year basis, we'll note that it peaks during or, or at the end of recessions and troughs in the beginning. So that's sort of my view on, on bank lending as, as it pertains to the cycle. 
I think bank lending is more more interesting in nominal terms because when banks lend, they basically create money, right? And if you have an inflationary world, then everything costs more. And so you're going to have to borrow more to buy that car, to buy that house. So you kind of have a cycle where when inflation goes higher, you're going to have to borrow more, more money gets created. And, you know, that's not helpful for inflation. So that's why it's important to have uh, rates, real rates be raised to, so that the real rates are positive, so that you tamp down on this credit creation. Um, Real rates have gone up a lot. I don't know if it's enough. Historically, it's, it's not. Um, as you know, many economic commentators have noted, you usually have to raise rates so that nominal rates so they're above inflation. Um, we're, we're not even close to that yet. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. And I've definitely heard many people talk about raising interest rates above the rate of inflation. Um, with inflation at, at 8%, I hope that we don't get there. Uh, that would probably make the mortgage rate like 12% or something like that, which would, I think, bring a lot of devastation to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, inflation averaged 2% um, uh, over the last 10 or 12 years and rates were zero. Uh, and uh, we still had three quasi-recessions uh, that occurred. So I think that uh, we have to consider that we're in a slightly different regime in terms of aggregate debt levels. So it's going to take smaller increases in the equilibrium real interest rate to slow economic activity. Uh, but I do agree with you that they obviously, you know, the, the, the basis of, of tightening financial conditions is getting real rates higher. So if they feel like they're falling behind on uh, getting this inflation under control, then they definitely will have to do more and continue to push those real rates higher. The problem with monetary policy and, and what the Fed uh, is, is doing is that there are just such big lags between you know, interest rates going up today and how that impacts the economy six to 12 months from now. So it was, you know, in, in my view, like the, the, the peak of ridiculousness on the last CPI print was way higher than everyone expected. We started pricing all of these rate hikes. The Fed leaked that they did 75 basis points. And I know that there, a lot of it was psychology to let people know that they are committed to getting this under control. But that inflation print last month had absolutely nothing to do with the rate hike that the Fed just did. That was as a result of, of economic activity several months in the past. So next month's inflation number uh, is not going to have anything to do with the 75 basis points that the Fed just did uh, at, at this meeting. You know, we have this lagged effects from rent that's coming through. We have you know uh, economic activity and, and, and new orders that were placed months ago that are coming into construction now. So there's there's this huge lag between uh, inflation and as far as the CPI and, and the Fed's uh, policy, which which makes it a little difficult because you know the Fed, you know they, they may look at, at tomorrow uh, next month's inflation print, and if it's way higher than expected, they're going to feel like they're you know behind the curve even further. They're going to have to ratchet up their rate hike expectations, but uh, that that may not have anything to do with with the last two rate hikes. Yeah, Joseph, as we reach a close, uh, what what are the, are the final thoughts you want to leave our, our audience with? Well, I, I think I, I agree with Eric. I think we're going to head to. Uh probably a hard landing. So going forward, I think we have to keep that in mind. But to me, it's interesting into what that means in an asset allocation perspective, because we could have, for example, lower real growth, negative real growth, but inflation could remain high. And so that makes asset allocation a lot more challenging because you probably can't run to bonds the same way that you used to be able to, since the Fed might still hike, even if we have a recession. So uh, so that's, uh, that's what I'm thinking about. Curious to what Eric thinks. Yeah, my view is that uh, 
similarly, the economy is on a pre-recessionary path now. We're heading towards a recession. Uh, the severity and the magnitude of the recession will be largely dependent on how long and how hard the Fed tightens. If the Fed pivots in December, that's one thing. If they don't pivot until March or June, that, that's another thing. The longer and more aggressively the Fed uh, tightens policy, the more severe uh, and the greater the likelihood of a hard landing will be. Uh, where, where I, I agree with Joseph, I think on 95% of what we talked about, I think where we may slightly uh, diverge is if we have a hard landing, I believe that'll assuredly drop uh, inflation and, and drop it quite quickly. Where I think that uh, the, the long-term view uh, that uh, inflation will come down runs into a systemic or a secular risk is if the Federal Reserve tightens policy, let's say we're in September or October, and there are uh, there's a major financial calamity in the markets that needs to be addressed by an increase in liquidity while inflation is still elevated. Uh, and the Fed, in combination with the fiscal authorities, do a COVID part two. That is a systemic risk to the thesis. But if the Fed sees this, uh, sees this policy through and ends up engineering a recession that, that uh, ends in a hard landing, uh, I think that that's going to bring inflation down. And eventually, if the Fed tightens enough, I think they'll actually take the right tail out of inflation. So uh, a lot of this will depend on the reaction function and, and how committed they actually are. But if they do, in fact, see this policy through and get inflation down, then I think we will return to our pre-COVID regime of a, of a disinflationary low growth trend. But that will depend on the Fed's resolve, which we are all anxiously awaiting. Yeah, it's like I think both of you, you have different economic views and different views on how the Federal Reserve will respond to that. But both roads lead to not a good situation for risk assets. Um, although it sounds like, Eric, you're more constructive on bonds uh, than Joseph is. Well, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Please follow uh, these gentlemen on Twitter. Joseph can be found at FedGuy12. His writings can be found at FedGuy.com. Central Banking 101, which is uh, something right behind me. Uh, you got to check out that book. Eric Basmajian, if you want to learn more about his uh, business cycle uh, research and framework, go. you can go to EPB epbmacroresearch.com um, and on Twitter he is at epbresearch gentlemen thanks so much thanks thanks Jack thanks Joseph